going to start with this, this little story again. Um, I like these little stories. I especially like this one. It's about a, a young soldier who is traveling with his commanding officer, who he wasn't all that fond of. But he was traveling with his commanding officer, and at that time they traveled in train. And they went into the train, and they went into the train, and looking for a seat as they're walking through the cars. The only place there was an empty seat was directly across from an elderly grandmother and her attractive daughter. And as they were going down the tracks on the train, the train had started moving. They were, they were visiting and some fun chatter going back and forth. And, and there was a continual connecting between the eyes of this young soldier and this young girl. It was noticeable to the commanding officer and the grandmother. And they could see that this was taking place. And then the train went into a tunnel. And it was completely dark as the train went through that tunnel. And you could hear two sounds. One was the smack of a kiss. And the other was the whack of a face being slapped. (laughs) It's still dark and the grandmother's thinking to herself, I can't believe he kissed my granddaughter. I'm really, really glad she slapped him across the face. The commanding officer is sitting there thinking, says, I don't blame the boy for kissing her. She's an attractive young lady. But I wish she wouldn't have missed and hit me. (laughs) And the young girl sitting there thinking, I'm glad he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother wouldn't have slapped him. And as the train comes out of the tunnel and the, train, the light of the, the, the sun lightens up, the, all they can see is the young soldiers just sitting there grinning from ear to ear. While they were in that tunnel, he accomplished two things. One, he kissed a beautiful young lady. And two, he slapped his commanding officer and got away with it. <laughs> he had seized the opportunity. He had seized the moment. If you remember last week, those of you who were here, I shared a, a story about a young girl talking to her, her father, who was a pastor, and asking about, is it possible to live a life without sin? And as they went through the process, it was, how about for a week or a month or, or even a day? And the answer is no, no, no. And then she finally had said, Dad, what about a moment? And he said, yeah, I think for a moment. And if you remember last week, the line little girl came up with his, then, Daddy, I'm going to live my life moment by moment. And as I share this story about seizing the opportunity, seizing the moment, and living moment by moment, the story's kind of funny, and it sounds good to live moment by moment, but it's really hard. Have you noticed that? You know, have you noticed even when you feel like you've heard the Lord speak something to you, how difficult it is to respond to that voice in obedience? And it might just be simple things. You're sitting in somewhere in a restaurant and you're just looking around and all of a sudden your eyes are drawn to someone and you hear the Lord say, you need to go over and say hi and just tell them Jesus loves them. And you, with fear and trembling, don't do anything. Moment by moment, seizing the moment. We have moments like that every day in our life. And it takes a certain amount of confidence to seize the moment. We're in the book of Philippians, and we're continuing to walk through it, and we're to chapter 3. And I've shared that Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I think chapter 3 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And as we talk about confidence, the title of the message this morning is simply, 
confidence properly placed. And if you're familiar with chapter 3, or as we go through it today, you're going to see that Paul gives us, and he lives out an example of what confidence properly placed looks like. In contrast to the type of confidence that we always hear about in the world. If you remember in Philippians 2.13 last week, the scripture says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Boy, Paul was setting the stage already there for where our confidence should be. God works in you to will and to do. When God puts something on your heart, a desire, a thought to go do something, it came from him. And if he gave you that thought, gave you that desire, it says he will then give you the ability, the power to do whatever it is he's asked you to do. And then the real clincher in Paul's teaching there was for his good pleasure. God loves it when his children do what he asks them to do. One, because it accomplishes a purpose. Two, it leads them further down the road to their destiny. God has a destiny and a purpose for each one of us. And part of that, for certain, for certain is to become more Christ-like. And as we do these things, we're becoming more Christ-like and obedient. And three, it brings great blessing to us when we do it. It's one of the greatest deals there ever was, but the enemy has so taken our minds and controlling thoughts and, and put in there fear, fear of embarrassment, fear of being ashamed, fear of making a fool of yourself, fear of being rejected, so that we don't do these things. And the confidence there is totally wrongly placed. Because when I'm feeling all those things, where is my confidence? It's rooted in me. And the world, of course, builds us up to be just that way. In the, the, the verse that I just read in Romans, or Philippians 2.13, at work to, to, in you to both will and to do, tells us my confidence needs to be in God. My confidence is in God. If he asks me to do something, I don't even need to think about the result. It's up to him. I just need to obey. Whatever it is, my confidence is in him. It changes our focus. It allows us to seize those opportunities. Allows us to seize the moment when those opportunities and moments come our way. In, in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be, I'm going to be reading through a lot of it. Uh, it will be on the screen also. But I want to read the first three verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He starts out right there. Remember, he's in jail. And he starts right out there, right there, right away, hitting him with his primary theme of the whole letter. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes right into a warning again in verse 2. Rejoice in the Lord, but be aware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Be aware of those who proclaim Christ, but they don't possess him. Be aware of those of the false circumcision, those that are still trying to rely on the law for their salvation. Beware of these religious people. They don't have the real thing. And in verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision 
who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're the true circumcision. There's this false circumcision that he just warned them about. These who claim to be spiritual, claim to know God, but they don't possess Christ. They really don't know God. The true circumcision are those who have accepted Jesus Christ and He has removed that spiritual impurity from us through the blood of Jesus. That's what's been circumcised in the true circumcision. That's what's been cut away. It's not some deal of dealing with flesh. It's spiritual. And He said that we're the true circumcision. Be aware. And then He finishes that by that, that powerful little statement, put no confidence in the flesh. I mean, how many times does the thought go through your head and my head when we feel the Lord prompting us to do something, I can't do that. And then we have to elaborate because the Holy Spirit might not leave you alone on that first excuse. Well, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not this enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't, I don't, I don't. And God's sitting there going, who cares? I called you. I prompted you right now. Seize the moment. Is your confidence in what you know and what you can do, or is it in me? Is your confidence in me? And Paul is saying, put no confidence in the flesh. None. Who or what you are or what you've accomplished in the world's eyes doesn't mean anything when God speaks to your heart. The world, of course, is just the opposite. Man, oh man, <clears throat> just this last week, I had, I had a great experience on Thursday. For those of you that don't know, I kind of like to golf a little, and sometimes a lot. And I've followed golf forever. Thursday afternoons, Darren Johnson and I have played partners in league at, Mar at Trip Marshall. And we get to the golf course, and there's this guy named Gary Player. Now, if you know anything about golf, Gary Player is a Hall of Fame professional golfer. And he's standing in Marshall. And he's going to play golf. He's 80 years old and he's walking around the golf course in 90 degree heat. And it's taking him forever because he's signing everybody's autograph and poses for pictures of everybody he meets. So Darren and I, of course, you know, we, 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 we became idol worshipers and got him off and got our picture taken with him and Oh, it was so neat. And I'm thinking about the world's point of view. I mean, he's a great guy. He had a great career. He swung a golf club and hit a ball in a hole four inches in diameter. I mean, I'm not to belittle it, but I'm thinking people were swarming to this person because he was a celebrity in a certain area, the golf world. And I'm thinking... Do we as Christians act anything like that when it comes to Jesus? When it comes to the things of God? Paul is going to tell us by showing his own example. Whatever it takes, I want to know Jesus. And I don't just want to know him and say, you know, people come up to you and they come up to me and they say, hey, do you know so and so? And do you, sometimes you ever stumble over how to answer that question because, yeah, I know, who I know their name, and that's about it. Well, so if I say I don't know them, that's not quite true, but if I say I know them, 
boy, it's almost misleading. And when Paul uses that word, I want to know Jesus, he's not just talking about mental ascent. He wants to know him. He wants to have experienced him as fully and completely as possible. And anything that gets in the way of that, get rid of it. It has no value. It doesn't mean you have to throw it all away. But its priority, its place, has to change significantly. And that's what Paul's example for us is going to be. Starting in verse 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. I'm going to reread verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. He's telling you and me, this is who we are. We worship in the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus. That's who we should be. And we put no confidence in the flesh. That's the way we should live. Although I myself, and now he starts. It's like, it's like if I'm listening to Paul and I'm going, yeah, but I'm pretty all it. He says, before you think that way, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, listen to this. I was circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Wow. If you were a Jew at that time, you'd be going, boy, I'm an ant. I hope he doesn't crush me. Because compared to him, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. And then in verse 7, he says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. When you look at what Paul is saying, look at yourself a little bit. Allow the Holy Spirit to shine the spotlight inward. I know it's painful sometimes, but it's good for us. He says, And look at us in the world that we live in today. I I believe it's more extreme. The world declares and promotes self-confidence. That whole, you're the man. Be all you can be. Grab a hole. Go for the gold ring. It's all about you. And sadly, you hear it in churches being preached from pulpits in many places. You can be this. You can be that. Just have the right attitude in you. Well, if it's the attitude of Christ, you got a shot at it. But if it's the attitude of your own self-esteem, you're going to strike out big time in what really matters. He is saying, look who I was. Look who we are. Is our confidence in our education? There's nothing wrong with education. It's a good thing. Is there confidence in our training? Nothing wrong with training. It's a good thing. Is there anything wrong with our past performance? No, it's okay. But if you're counting on any of those things to help you know Christ to be, for your salvation, Paul's saying, it isn't going to happen. The world spends all this time in the, the, the marketing industry. We have some marketers in here. You know, we, we know, we know how the world thinks. If we want to sell our product, just tell them that what we've got and to give you to, that you can buy from us is going to make you the best fill-in-the-blank. If you just buy this, you know, so we market that product telling them you're going to do this, this much better. And again, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but that should give us an idea of what our psychology is like as human beings and especially as Americans. 
we put so much confidence in ourselves. It's kind of a how-to confidence. As long as I know how-to, I've got confidence in that area. Well, God loves to take us way out of our comfort zone and say, okay, go for it. I can't, God. can't. You know, those that are going to Columbia, when we were down there a couple years ago, when they said, okay, ministry's open, come to the altars, you had hundreds of people coming to the altar expecting you to pray for them and God would heal them. Now, if you're going to stand in that line thinking about, boy, I got something good for them, you're, you're crazy. You're crazy. I was in such a terrible place. That actually, I guess I could call it sin. I guess I could. It, I was in a place of sin that first night. I didn't want to go anywhere near it because I figured I didn't have anything to offer him. You know, Dylan's over there helping a blind lady get her eyesight because he was obedient and stepping out in faith. I'm over there thinking, I'm not going to pray for anybody. I got nothing. What pride. What arrogance. To think that there'd be something in me other than Christ, other than the Holy Spirit, that could do anything for these people. And that's the way we are in our, our mindset. And that's where all of a sudden fear comes in, intimidation comes in, and we reinforce failure. And the enemy loves it because he's basically neutering us of the power of God. Who's our confidence in? Paul says, look at my ancestry. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am a, of the nation of Israel. I'm a tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to compare ancestries? Let's look at yours and then let's look at mine. Then he says, this is orthodoxy. Look at this. As far as the law is concerned, I'm a Pharisee. If you weren't intimidated before, that ought to back you up. You know, in the world, how many letters do they have after their name? Uh-oh. We almost need to genuflect. No. They've got some training. They've got some expertise. Great. But it's not what gives us the confidence that means anything to God. His activity he says, as far as zeal's concerned, hey, I persecuted the church. Matter of fact, I had people killed. Talk about zeal. Talk about excitement for God as he understood him. He says, how many of you did that? And his morality, he says, as far as righteousness is concerned when it comes to the law, faultless. Boy, he's setting the stage. First he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Then he says, this is who I am am slash was. And then he says, it's worthless. You know, that kind of confidence is pride. It's nothing but pride. You know, there's people who are confident and there's a humility there. They're confident. As Christians, we should be the most confident human beings on the earth. Confidence Self-esteem to a Christian is knowing our identity in Christ. I'm not much, but I am a child of God. Top that one. Top that one. What's your education? I, you know, I don't have much. But the Holy Spirit of God, who knows all things, lives in me and will give me whatever I need. Man, oh man, how do you, how do you stop that person who knows who they are in Christ 
can't. I can do nothing in my own strength, but through Christ I can do all things because he gives me strength. When we start to grasp all of that, it's an amazing transformation, and this is what's taking place or took place in the Apostle Paul's life. He was all of this in the world's eyes, but he says, I count it all as a loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever things were a gain to me, in other words, whatever things were an advantage to me in the world I was living in, you know, my degree, being a Pharisee, being born of the tribe of Benjamin, all of those things, whatever is a gain to me, I count it all a loss. In other words, I'd throw it all away in a second to know Jesus. I don't have to throw it away to know Jesus, but if it gets in the way, I'd throw it away. And as far as salvation is concerned, worthless. Worthless. I want to know Christ, is what he is telling us. Loss for the sake of Christ. All those things really are disadvantageous in knowing Christ, if they're our source of confidence. They're a hindrance. Paul's saying they're nothing but an obstacle that got in the way. Boy, he's a great example. He had all those things. He thought he knew it all. He was a Jew's Jew. And he thought when he was committing murder, persecuting the church, doing all these things, he thought he was doing the will of God. That's how deceived he was. Why did he think that? Why was he so deceived? Well, there is an enemy, that's for sure. But he had all of this confidence in all these natural things that he had and possessed. And that's where his confidence was. And here comes this crazy ragamuffin band of disciples being led by a carpenter's kid named Jesus. And he is totally messing up his whole world. His whole world. He takes a bunch of fishermen and turns them into people that are going to turn the world upside down. Who are you and I to turn the world upside down? Perfect candidates. All we need to do is make sure our confidence is in Christ, not us. We can do impossible things for God if he leads us into those impossible things because he will give us the will and the ability to do whatever it is that he leads us into. When it came to salvation, Paul had discovered all that stuff was worthless. In verse 8, I'm going to read a little further now. In verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be loss, not just what I just mentioned, but I count everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them all but rubbish in order they may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Read those verses over and over. Let it sink in. This is what he's at. He pounces it all as rubbish. And that word rubbish could be translated dung. You know what dung is? Yeah, good. This, you couldn't, Paul couldn't have chosen a stronger word to 
call this stuff rubbish, dung, refuge, filth, garbage of any kind. It's a strong, strong word in the Greek. And he says, I count all that I did, all that I did as dung when it comes to me knowing Christ. It didn't do me any good. It hindered me. It's what held me back because I put my confidence in it and and not in God. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Discovering the truth that righteousness was not in keeping the law. Righteousness comes by faith. It's a gift of grace by believing that Jesus was and is the Son of God a Savior who died for us. Righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, I got it. I got it. I count all that other stuff as dung, as garbage compared to this. I gained this. I gave all that up that I thought was really important for this, which is so amazing the words of a natural mind can't even explain it. It's that amazing. And he said, do it again in a heartbeat. And this is what he's telling the church at Philippi as an example because eventually he says, hey, let me be your example. He says to us, let me be your example. Verse 10, he says, that I may know. As I said earlier, it goes way beyond mental assent. It's that experientially knowing him, being in an intimate relationship with someone. If you're in here, you probably could all say, hey, if someone came to you and said, hey, do you know Mike Nelson? You could say, yeah, I know Mike Nelson. The reality is not many of you necessarily know Mike Nelson. You might know my name, but is there an intimacy to our relationship? Is there an experiential relationship there that we know and trust and and that's been built up over time? And this is what Paul is saying. I want to know him. 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 Nothing else matters. I want to be like Jesus. That's what he's saying. I want to be like Jesus. Man, if that would be our consuming thought as Christians, what would the Christian world be able to accomplish with Christ? I want to be like Jesus, no matter what. That's my goal. That's my. He says, I want to be like Jesus. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. That's a power. I want to know that power. Problem is, a lot of us want to know the power, but we still want to hang on to the, all the other stuff. Well, guess what? Which do we want more? I want to know the power of the resurrection. Then he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. How many of you pray that prayer? Oh, Lord, I want to suffer more for you. This is what Paul, I want to know his sufferings. Most of us want to reign with Christ, but do we want to suffer with him? You know, it's amazing when you hear some of these testimonies of the the saints of the past that in our eyes we think, wow, they did amazing things for God. Then you read their story and you go, wow, did they suffer for Christ. There seems to be a correlation. Are we willing to suffer for Christ? The reality is, and Paul really, he uses those words, but really Paul isn't even, in his mind, he doesn't even consider it a bad thing. It's suffering, but it's a good thing. I'm suffering for Christ. I'm identifying with Christ. I'm knowing Him better. And then lastly, he said, and this is interesting, I want to be conformed to His death. 
Now, usually when I used to read that, I would just say, yeah, I died with Christ, I rose with Christ. And there's truth to that. But if you really study those words, he is saying, I want to die like he died. I want to conform to his death. I want to have the same form of death. I want to experience everything. Wow, that's a tough prayer to pray. It's a tough way to think. But that gives us an idea. When, when Paul's holding here the value of knowing Jesus intimately compared to all this other stuff, I, I want it all. I want it all. And why do I want it all? In order, verse 11, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The ultimate goal. I want to know it all. I want to experience it all. I want to spend eternity in heaven with him. I want to experience the resurrection from the dead. I want to be raised and taken home to be with him. And he goes through all of this, and then he comes to verses 12 through 17, and I'm not sure how far I'm going to go here, but he says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And verse 14, kind of been one of my verses since I got saved. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Paul's saying it's time to persevere. He says, I haven't, I haven't achieved this. He uses the imagery of a race. You know, that the runner racing. Press on. The finish line's out there. The goal is out there. The prize is out there. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. So many people start out a house of fire for God, and it doesn't take long, a few bumps in the road, and they just kind of all of a sudden, they're right back where they were. Paul's saying, don't quit. He hasn't reached the goal yet. Just think, he, he was converted. He had that amazing conversion on the road to Damascus. He's been raised from the death of sin. He's born again, spiritually alive. He's been given spiritual life, peace, and joy. He's done all these amazing things. He says, I haven't got there yet. But I press on to fulfill the purpose for which God called him. God didn't call any of us to just be nice. He didn't even call us just to get to heaven, as nice as that is. He has a purpose here on earth until we get to heaven. And he's called us. And Paul is saying, press on. Press on, press on for that purpose that God has, you, has for you. And then he says, there's one thing I do. And I'll wrap up after this. This one thing I do. What is it he says? Forget what lies behind. Notice he doesn't distinguish between bad and good. He just said, forget what lies behind. One of the things that paralyzes us as Christians is our past. We need to forget the bad things. We need to forget all... Just think, in Paul's life, he was a religious persecutor. He killed people. He had people murdered. He was so filled with pride and haughtiness because of who he was. He had caused a lot of pain and done a lot of things. But then he got to know Christ, and then he had a choice. And that's the same choice you and I all have. 
Those of us that use our past as an excuse. Those of us who think, I've done this, I've been this, there's no way I can be good enough, no way I can be forgiven. We're living in the past. He says, forget all that. If you've truly accepted Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. He's saying, forget it. You've got to quit going back there. It will hold you back. The devil will use your past to stop your growth. Forget the past. Go on. We all have a choice. In Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I, even I, am he who, holds, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. If he doesn't want to remember them and he's going to keep throwing them in your face, why would you? Why should we? We need to get past the past so we can focus on the moment When the moment comes, seize the moment instead of let the past creep in and the devil will use the past. Count on it. We have a choice. He repeated it in Jeremiah, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And I said earlier, forget the good. What in the world? Why forget the good? Anybody know anybody that every time, I've used this example so many times, you're probably sick of me saying, I have a friend. Every time I meet him and see him, and I'm now 61, 61 years old, graduated a long time ago. Every time I meet my classmate, we're going to talk about high school football games and basketball games. And he says, you remember this play? And do you remember this play? And I'm going, are you serious? I don't remember where I graduated. (laughs) But he's living in the past. That was that one good time in his life where he had, and we're trying to relive it. And we all can fall into that trap. Remember the good old days in the church when everybody knew everybody? We had a fellowship dinner. We just called everybody and everybody came. We all sat in the circle and sang Kumbaya. It was awesome. Get over it. It was good, but it's not today. Are we going to stop and wish for the past? Are we going to watch and say, hey, God is doing a new thing? Matter of fact, I think he said that. I'm doing a new thing. It doesn't have to be weird. It's just different. And if we want to be used by God and reach our destiny, we've got to be ready to forget even the good things. And let's just go on and see what He is, what He has for us, and maximize those moments when they come. Isaiah 43, 18. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. What is that new thing? In each one of our lives, it's doing something that's new every day. Every day in the church, it's going to change. It's going to be new. It's going to look different. You know what? We could have stayed a church of 70 people and been so comfortable and happy. It's a lot less work. But just think how we'd have locked ourselves into such such a place that's located so far from the destiny of a church, the destiny of the people. God wants to do a good thing. He says, face the present in verses 13, 14. Reach forward. We're going forward. Press towards the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. There is an incorruptible crown in heaven waiting for you and me. Man, any prize you're chasing here on earth, it means nothing compared to that prize. And Paul's saying, press on. Press on. Finish the race. Don't give up. What kind of things are you hanging on to? What kind of things am I hanging on to that are preventing me from going forward? What kind of things are there in our past that we keep looking over our shoulder and say, you know what, I'm not good enough. I screwed it up so bad, there's no way. Those are lies from the enemy. 
They're lies from the enemy. Paul says, look forward. And my confidence is in Christ. It's properly placed in Christ. You know what? When we are weak, you make us strong. And he loves to use the weak. He loves to use the humble. He loves to use those who know that without Christ, I can't do anything. But with, with him, there isn't anything I can't do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I praise you and thank you for Paul, his example, the way he lived his life after his conversion. God, I thank you that we, we see that whatever our past has been like, there is a future, that you have a plan for each one of your children. Lord, I pray especially for those here who, who are so burdened by their past mistakes. God, I pray that you would just allow them to see who they are as a child of God, created in his image, loved by you unconditionally, empowered by your Holy Spirit, with that potential, a spiritual potential, a destiny to do great things for the glory of God, to advance the kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would grab a hold of those truths. Lord, I pray that you would put in each one of us a hunger for your word that our mind might be renewed by the washing of the word. That we would consume it and allow your Holy Spirit to transform us. Lord, I thank you that you've called us. And we confess, I confess that we've often fall so short because we limit ourselves according to how we see ourselves. Lord, I pray you would forgive us, forgive me for putting their, my confidence in the wrong thing. Lord, I thank you that we have great opportunities, second chances place our confidence in you and be your hands and feet. We can be your voice to those that are hurting, offering hope and love, encouragement, joy, peace, the truth of the gospel. Let us become more like Paul that we might become more like Christ. I pray now, Lord, you would bless each one, watch over us, keep us safe, Help us to hear your voice. Give us the grace to respond that we might capture those moments, that we might experience the blessings that you have for us in each one of those moments. And I ask all this that Jesus' name would be glorified and lifted up. Amen.